1: Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On the podcast for this episode, we welcome back David Runciman, the popular podcaster and academic who's professor of politics at Cambridge University. He's here to discuss his latest book, The Handover. Joining him to discuss it is Adam McCauley, who is Senior Policy Advisor at the Department of National Defence in Canada and a writer on issues such as politics, technology and the future. Adam was previously based at the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford. This conversation was recorded a few weeks
0: ago at the end of last year, 2023. Let's join Adam now with more. Well, welcome. I'd like to start by uh, thanking David for joining us here at Intelligence Square today and for sharing his time. I know this is a busy time of year. Um, For those that don't know, um, David Runciman is professor of politics at Cambridge University and the author of a number of books, including The Politics of Good Intentions, Political Hypocrisy, and The Confidence Trap. He writes regularly about politics and current affairs for a wide range of publications, including the London Review of Books, and hosts the weekly podcast Past, Present, Future. So as we bring 2023 to a close, a year devoured by developments and discussions of a most unique kind of artificial agent, I'm so pleased to be able to discuss David's new book, The Handover, how we gave control of our lives to corporations, states, and AIs. So in brief, and without too many spoilers, I hope, The Handover explores how our species, over hundreds of years, has persistently created artificial agents to deliver particular kinds of goods, Notably, security with the creation of the modern state and prosperity with the creation of the corporation. Seen in this light, preparing for a world potentially on the brink of the age of artificial intelligence means understanding how these latest artificial agents will interact with the others and influence us. The handover is particularly concerned with the way that artificial actors influence human agency and our ability to make decisions. And in this sense, David's book stands as a warning. Once we hand over decision-making power to the machines we create, they tend to exert persistent and maybe irreversible influence in the world. It's only reasonable to ask then whether we, as human actors on their stage, are better or worse for it. So in that vein, I hope we might sort of structure our conversation today as a play in three acts, for lack of a better term. Act one will sort of serve as a setup. Act two, an outline of the problems and concerns that you raise in the book. And then Act 3, maybe exploring some of the enduring puzzles and what might come next. So, David, welcome. Thank you very much. Um, And let me start with kind of the, I guess, uh, the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about the origin story of this book and and maybe with reference to the patron saint, uh, Thomas Hobbes?
2: Sure. In some ways, this book um, is something I've been thinking about for a long time. I study the history of political thought. And if you do, you become aware that human beings have thought about building artificial versions of themselves for hundreds of years, in fact, longer. I mean, there are great books about the ancient world and the various robots that the ancients built. But for me, the the penny drop moment was a book that I know well, Thomas Hobbes' Love Earth and published in 1651. So this is three and a half plus centuries ago. And the very first line of that very famous book, which has many more famous lines in it, the most famous being that life is nasty, brutish and short without the state. The very first line describes the state as an automaton or as a robot. And my puzzle in a way was, first of all, is this true? It's a sort of odd thing for someone to think in the middle of the 17th century. What would it mean to think of the state as a artificial agent in this way? And then secondly, what is the difference between this kind of artificial agent and the ones that we're worried about now, the AIs? And the big difference, just in the terms of Hobbes and his argument about the state, is that his robots are not intelligent. I mean, in that their intelligence comes from human beings. They are as intelligent as we are. They have other kinds of superpowers. So, they are superhuman entities. Um, They can do things that human beings can't do, and they can rule our world. In fact, they do rule our world, but they don't do it through superior intelligence. In fact, Hobbes was quite clear that states can be pretty stupid, as human beings can be pretty stupid. In fact, states are as stupid as the human beings who run them. So that then the question is, what are those superpowers and how do they compare to the, the superpowers of, of the AIs? Because they are different. They are, and I know there's a huge argument which we may get into about whether intelligence is the right way to frame it. Are they are they super-intelligent entities? But certainly, they are thinking machines or learning machines, um, and it's cognitive, the question of their relationship to us with the state and with the corporation, which is in many ways modeled on this version of the state. It's not their cognitive skills, it's their other abilities, including their durability, their power, their ability to deliver on the consequences of their decisions, their coercive authority, and all the rest. So it's about another kind of breed of robots, that we've been living with for hundreds of years these robots do rule our world we've almost naturalized them we're so used to them we don't we, we don't often think of them as robots what does that story tell us about the, the next stage the next generation of artificial thinking machines but also what does the sequence tell us because my book is also concerned with history and sequence how much does it matter that those other ones came first yeah
0: i think What your book does so well um, is to take a far longer perspective on some of the critical questions around sort of artificiality and mechanization of politics, however we might might see it. But I wonder if you could dig in a little bit to to each of these distinct agents, because I think you set them up in a really meaningful way, largely to introduce this sort of the aspect of artificial intelligence halfway through this book. But maybe either from a Hobbesian perspective or for your own sort of interpretation of what the state is there to do or what it serves if you could move us through sort of the state and the corporation as kind of um, essential models for the artificial agent and, and tell them how they differ um, and how we might see them and how we understand their role
2: in our lives today. Sure. Um, and, and and part of the point of this book is to draw parallels, but also differences. I mean, there's always a temptation, I think, when talking about AI, particularly just to fall for the parallels. You know, we tend to get spooked and freaked out when they do stuff that remind us of us. <laughs> and then we forget all the ways in which they're different. And the same is true of states and corporations. So, and there are parallels between them, as I just suggested, that there, there is a, a related model. And, and in Hobbes's account, he's clear that states and corporations basically function on the same model. Um, they are decision-making machines. So their primary role in our lives is to take decisions for us. We franchise out decision-making. We pool resources, in the case of the corporation, that is primarily financial resources. But in the case of the state, it's more than that. We, we pool our bodies in the sense that you know, modern states can take command of our bodies too. Some corporations can as well, but it's not in their sort of DNA. But it is in the DNA of the state. And even that phrase DNA, I'm aware that's a false analogy, right? Because they don't have DNA. Um, so they're decision-making entities. But the point of them is that, that they can deliver decisions to a scale, and particularly to a time scale that human beings can't. So the modern state, the thing that comes out of the 17th and 18th centuries, it was a a mechanism designed to solve the basic problem of politics, which is politics was too human and it was too vulnerable to the vulnerabilities of natural human beings. The number one vulnerability of all of us is that we die. And politics was bedeviled by what happens with successions, when kings die, when emperors die, all of the seething turmoil of court politics, which all turns on human frailty and... So much of politics pre the modern state turned on dynastic questions, marriage, you know, the obsession with producing an heir. I've just watched a terrible film, Napoleon. But nonetheless, you know, it has that pre-modern echo in it when he makes himself an emperor. He's one of the creators of the modern state. But when he's an emperor, he wants to have a little Napoleon to follow him. The point about states is that they don't operate to a natural rhythm. So they are longer lived, potentially the successful ones they keep going like machines as human beings come and go. And they can sustain burdens that human beings can't. And in the book, I I identify two burdens in particular. The most important, actually, even though it sounds very prosaic, is debt. So states are, among other things, debt-bearing machines. And they can sustain, they can borrow and then sustain those debts for far longer than any human being can. The problem with kings is that they were always running out of money, borrowing money, couldn't pay it back, the debt was called in, the state fell apart. And that produced, among other things, the French Revolution. Then you get these modern mechanical bureaucratic forms of politics where decisions run through this mechanistic or algorithmic system. And it turns out that you can sustain debt for centuries. You can borrow far more money at lower rates of interest and then build all these other projects on the back of it. Corporations play a similar role. States and corporations, when you look at them, the most successful ones are often massively indebted. And then in the case of the state, unlike the corporation, it's also where we put moral obligations of certain kinds. So, for instance, war is one of them. The ability to sustain you know, the killing machine of war, which individual human beings, even the most powerful ones, find hard to sustain. So there's a, you know, there's a plus and a minus to all of this. It's not all good news. It's not all bad news. These things can bear burdens that are basically inhuman. I mean, the burden of total war in the modern age is an inhuman burden for anything to bear so we put it onto an inhuman thing. The debt is the same. Corporations are similarly modeled in that they are these artificial decision-making machines onto which you can dump debts and obligations and so on. They are inhuman, but they don't have the reach of states. At least, they're not meant to. Some of them have evolved to be state-like. Uh, they are designed for particular purposes, usually for particular projects. States, are, uh, I call states in this book general artificial agents, general purpose, and Corporations are more like specific purpose artificial agents, but they have those parallels in common. The crucial thing about both of them, the reason that they are so important in our lives and so dominant in our lives is their superhuman powers. I mean, that is the crucial thing about them. They are not human. And we need to remember that because it means they can do things that we can't do. But it also means they don't have human qualities, they can do these things because they don't have a conscience. They don't have a soul. They aren't going to hell. I don't know if we are or not, but they definitely aren't. So it, it, it's that kind of story in which there's always a temptation, I think, when we draw these analogies with these kinds of machines or with AIs to make it a kind of all or nothing thing. They're either going to be great or they're going to be terrible. They're either like us or they're not like us. They're either human or they're not human. These things are complicated S- double machines they do they always do two things at the same time you know, their human qualities go with their inhuman qualities their strengths go with their weaknesses the things they can do you have to run alongside the things that they can't do that's the world that we live in and that that's to me so clearly echoes the fears that we have now about the coming age of ai
0: i think I mean that speaks to one of the critical critical sort of frictions I think in the background here is if you if you take the temperature of the room at the moment with the question of AI and what the future of AI may be drawing us towards, we quickly stumble on this this question around control. And one of the things that I think is quite fascinating about how you lay out the state and I'll and I'll quote um, something you write here is that the state requires a separate entity or identity, and with the ability to act in its own name so that it can it can sustain long term commitments. But the question then becomes, what are its interests and what are the ways in which people, individuals, at least in this maybe original position or otherwise, understood translating interests into an artificial or mechanistic sort of system like the state? Um, And can we can we speak or do we have a good sense of how we understand uh, a state's interests in and of itself? I think you make it. you draw sort of an analogy at one point to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and that's very much kind of a story we hear often kind of in the international space, which is to, to question whether or not organizations have a clear and independent interest or whether they are Frankensteins of many interests. And if so, how do they translate those interests into, I think, to your point, super agency or action? So I'm just curious to know how you sort of see the interest of, a, of an entity like the state
2: in this con- in this context? Yeah, it's a great question, um, though you did frame it as neither or question, and my answer is both. You know, <laughs> they are both aggregations of human interest, and they are also these superhuman entities. And I have a chapter in the book about the different ways that you can understand philosophically and practically what I call groupthink, but the different ways in which different human interests or insights or even just intelligences can be aggregated because there are lots of collective activities which are the aggregation of what the human beings bring to them. You know, they are aggregative. But states and corporations are not that. States and corporations are not simply the aggregation of the human beings who make them up. Though we sometimes attempt to think they are, particularly in democracies, I think we sometimes hope that the state might be just you know, all of us acting together. But it's not because it does have its own identity for sure. But to go back to the point I made at the beginning, and I think this is something that's often lost sight of, and it is one of the things, I may not have emphasized it as clearly in the book as I would have liked to, which is, there's a huge literature in international relations, and there's endless arguments, philosophical, practical arguments about what's usually called realism, and and the idea of whether realpolitik means understanding that these things called states just have their own interests, and they will act in their own interest. But I still think it is the case that even were that to be true, they don't have their own intelligence in the sense that you can't, in the case of the state, really identify an intelligence as people think we are soon going to be able to to with AIs or whatever their equivalent is. Not yet. I don't think we're there yet. Machine learning is not artificial intelligence. Machine learning, you can still interpret In terms of the inputs even if it produces weird and wonderful results but with the state i don't think we're yet at the point sorry with the state i don't think we are have ever been at the point where we can say this thing is really thinking for itself so it is still made up of the inputs from our brains our thoughts our ideas our hopes our fears it aggregates them but it does then turn them into something other than just the sum of their parts once you get a state decision, it's not just then reducible to lots of individual human components. It, it, you know, it is like an algorithm in that sense. It then produces an outcome. And as I say in the book, state outcomes are the most powerful outcomes in the world, and the world changes as a result of them. The world becomes a different place once the state has decided, because the state can carry the consequences of that decision far further, far longer. It's more durable than any other equivalent organization. And I think that's what makes states different. So they are this weird kind of hybrid thing. They're not completely inhuman because their human qualities do come from us. And you know, they, states are run by governments. Governments are made up of human beings. The people who run governments are human beings. Uh, you know, Joe Biden is a human being. The people who work for him are human beings. Their collective decisions are often aggregate decisions. There are lots of different ways that states have within them organizations that run very differently from states, little committees or, you know, or, or indeed democratic organizations where collective decisions are genuinely collective. But they input into a decision, which is in that case, the decision of the American state, which is a different kind of thing. It has a, it has a quality an artificial quality and durability that is inhuman. And it's that hybrid quality that makes them so interesting, so weird I think we forget how weird they are. And also, it's so tempting to, to, and I spend quite a lot of the book talking about this, it's so tempting to want to humanize them, to try and make ourselves more comfortable with them, to sort of find the human bits and really latch onto those. And there is a danger with that, which is if you really humanize them, you misunderstand them. So if you think that they are, in the end, reducible to their human components, you miss what they have, which is this this quality which is inhuman, and the downside of that quality is enormous destructive power beyond anything that's ever been true in human history. I mean, it's you know it is the case that, as I say in the book, if the world ends, it's these things that are going to kill us. Right? Human beings are capable of ending the world, and you know they make terrible decisions. But it's the following through on those decisions. It's the ability to turn those decisions into world-ending action that can only be done by these, these monsters. And therefore, we, we have to remember, for all the good they've done us, which is a lot, and not just security, you know, social democracy is built out of these things. You do not get welfare states without the state. You can't borrow, you can't organize, you can't transact on that scale. You can't do that in the ancient world, you can't do it in the medieval world, you can't do it in the early modern world. For all the good they do, they are monsters.
0: One of the things that I think is um, quite evident once you read your book is is a tension um, as well between sort of this kind of never ending debate between agency and structure. Right. So um, one of the things I find fascinating is you try and tease out a little bit of the history of how these artificial agents both emerge, but then emerge together and then change sort of with each other over time. and I've I've sort of I've I've pulled this line from from the book you write when explosive growth happens. It is the interplay between states and corporations that drives this, uh, which is why there are many more successful and functioning states and corporations, you know, two hundred years later than there were at the beginning. And the way in which you sort of set this up is um, kind of well, I'll say in two stages. First, kind of competition, right? States. Um, in that historical period and the emergent sort of corporate entities, the Dutch East India companies, if you will. Um, And then there's this moment, not necessarily of cooperation, but so let's call it uneasy coexistence. And then certainly something um, that looks a lot more like cooperation or mutual reinforcement, right? Some kind of symbiosis that emerges between states and corporations in our more recent history. So if you could just talk about the relationship between these two agents, because I think before we touch on, you know, what artificial intelligence as an agent, if we see it that way, brings to this um, puzzle, I, it's nice to know kind of what the state of play between states and corporations is at
2: present and how that's evolved over time. Sure, um, like like you say in the early part of this story, um, there's competition partly because the line between them is not nearly so clear. The Dutch East India Company, the the British East India Company performed lots of state-like functions. You know, these things had armies, which corporations don't today. That they have you know, extensive security apparatus. They don't, on the whole, have their own armies. Um, they took on various state-like functions, including judicial functions. You know, they were regimes of punishment and all of the rest. But over time, there's a kind of division of labor in the sense that corporations become the the engines of prosperity, and states become the engines of security. And though the line is never completely clear that division of labor, and as you say, sort of uneasy symbiosis, tends to be, on my reading of history, and this is sweeping history, so you know there's always ways to pick holes in it, on my reading of history, that tends to be the thing that is the, the spark of what we have seen repeat itself throughout the world in the modern age, which is explosive economic growth. And it happens in different places at different times. So relatively recently, in places like India, really only since the 1990s, China since the 1970s, in the United States, the 1820s, in France, the middle of the uh, 19th century, Germany later in the 19th century, first of all, probably in, in England, in Britain at the end of the 18th century, where something happens where these two things exist alongside each other, but do different things. They they take their superhuman powers, but they perform different functions with them. That is this, you know, it's, it, it it causes human growth to explode, and I describe it in the book as the first singularity. Because if you look at the the graphs that describe this, they are all hockey sticks. You know, human life went along a certain way for ten thousand years, hundred thousand years, and then over the course of a couple of decades, it explodes, and you see that pattern repeating itself, and it's repeated itself in many places. You know, in South Korea life in South Korea in the 1950s was not that different from life in terms of basic economic measures, life in South Korea in the 1350s. Life in South Korea now is like another universe and it's economic growth that's driven it. And it's state doing security, corporation doing economic um, innovation and prosperity, but they work together. And in the South Korean case, you see they working together quite closely and cooperatively at various periods, including protectionism of certain corporations and close human relationships between the people who run the states and run the corporations. So there are lots of different models of it. In the 21st century, you see different models of it around the world. The United States state corporation relationships are very different from in China, and they are very different from in Europe and the European Union. But they are all still within the same broad universe, which is not the East India Company version. It's not that when when Facebook, as it was then called, wanted to have its own currency, the US Treasury said, no, not in a million years are you having your own currency. We, we do that, like the dollar is the linchpin of our ability to provide security, among other things. Um, you do what you do. So it's not the East India Company version. And nor is it some futuristic version, which we'll probably come on to, where these corporations, they don't do traditional state functions, but the thought that some of the big tech companies in conjunction with the super smart machines that they're building, these new AIs, are going to somehow take us past and beyond the state, because you'll almost be able to live your whole life on Google, Alphabet, Meta, the Metaverse, whatever it is. You know, that's not the East India Company version, but there's always in the age of AI, in the last 10, 15, 20 years, been this kind of promise of a post-political world where somehow the, the, the clunky old analog Hobbesian lumbering Frankenstein's robot gets left behind by this sleek new alliance between powerful corporations as economic agents allied with these smart machines. We're not there yet. We've left the East India Company world behind. We're not in that brave new world we're still in the recognizable world, which has run in in Europe and the United States for a couple of centuries, in parts of Asia for 50, 70 years, in some parts of the world more recently than that. We're still in that world, but we might be near the end of it. The events
1: calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared.
0: I think this is one of those moments where, you know, because the book does such a good job of sort of leading you up to the present, um, I'm really curious to have you kind of dig into wh- how you feel artificial intelligence fits into this story. It's obviously the thing that everybody can't stop talking about. It's unclear whether or not all those conversations are useful or helpful or illustrative of whatever future may or may not emerge. But I'd be curious to know how you see artificial intelligence. Is this is this an agent unto itself? Is it a set of tools that augments the abilities and capabilities of others? Um, And where, you know, provisionally, as we're gazing into the crystal ball here, where do we see this, this force sort of exerting its energy within this space? And obviously, to your point, through the extant artificial agents that already populate our world.
2: Yeah, so in a way, that would be my first answer, which is simply to agree with you, it does fit into this story because you will often hear from the more sort of boosterish elements of Silicon Valley that we're starting again, you know, we're entering a new phase of the human story. And a lot of this is new. So at the most basic level, one of the things my book is trying to do is just to try to remind people there is a history here. And history matters in this story. And we are still in this story. So it's not like there's history, which is this quaint antiquarian thing, and then chat GPT comes along, and history is over, and we're in the next thing. I, I, there's nothing that I've seen that's happening now that doesn't feel to me that it's not still part, recognizably part of this history. Not least because, as I said a bit earlier, there is a sequence here. So there are parallels. I think there are interesting philosophical, political parallels between these different kinds of agents. And a lot large part of my book, particularly the first part, is trying to tease us out so that when we talk about AI, we can see some of the parallels. But the sequence is just as important. And the sequence is there are human beings. Human beings built artificial versions of themselves, which I call states and corporations. It's a kind of shorthand because some of these are complex and don't quite neatly fit in those categories, but I call them states and corporations. They built artificial versions of themselves to do things that human beings can't do. It was a very successful sort of experiment, which turned into a way of life. And now those things are building the next generation of machines. And one of the mistakes I think that it's easy to make when thinking about AI is just to get preoccupied with the relationship between the latest machines and the humans. And I think the the I in AI encourages that because it, it suggests that the key question about AI is how does its intelligence, whatever it is, relate to other kinds of intelligence, particularly, almost exclusively, human intelligence. Though I've heard fascinating talks comparing AI with how plants think, or you know trees, and lots of interesting, really interesting work that's done on how children think, very, very young children, and so on. That's still human intelligence, but it's not often what we mean by human intelligence. That's only one question. And my book is is about the other thing, which I think is neglected, which is how do the A's relate to each other? So it's not how does artificial intelligence relate to other kinds of intelligence, but how does artificial intelligence relate to artificial agency, which is what you know, we've been living with for hundreds of years. And I think that the key thing is that these artificial agents run our world. And that means they also run the world into which these AIs are emerging. Secondly, these AIs aren't just like emerging in the wild. Like, you know, they haven't been given birth to by creatures that have gone off and produced them. They've been given birth to by states and corporations. I mean, that's what built them, right? The the Amer- and, and not just corporations as well, you know, it's really important to push back against the myth making of Silicon Valley that super smart people in garages came up with brilliant ideas and hit these machines of the result. I mean, it's it's now a cliched part of the story. The American military-industrial complex produced the, the infrastructure on which the digital revolution was built. And without the investment of the American state, and now the investment of the Chinese state, usually driven by security concerns, so almost always spending on that scale can only be done by states and can only be done by states that have existential fears about their survival under conditions of war. So the Cold War and now the new Cold War between the U.S. and China is driving much of the investment that's producing these revolutions in artificial intelligence. So states and corporations are the building blocks of these things, and the question I, th- I feel that gets neglected—you know—all of all of the chatter about what will these new thinking machines do to us—is any answer to that question has to pass through our understanding of how states and corporations control these machines. So if we think these machines are terrible, or they need to be better regulated, or they need to be made more moral, say, you know, like often boards of ethicists are convened to sort of work out how to build AIs that aren't going to kill us all. That question means nothing if you don't have an account of how it passes through the decision-making structure of these vast, monstrous entities that rule our world. And we don't spend enough time talking about that. And just to give one example very briefly, but it's the one that's sort of in my mind, You know, the recent sort of hoo-ha about open AI and Sam Altman and all of that, and you know, it's often been written up as a sort of philosophical argument about AI, and there are the people within AI, within open AI who have these ethical concerns that these machines are going to destroy humanity, big, big concern. And then uh, there are the sort of Sam Altmans who want to make money out of them. And it's a sort of philosophical debate between. But that story was about corporate governance. I mean, that was what that was about. It was about the structure of the OpenAI board. You know, none of that story makes sense unless you understand it was a weirdly structured company that produced this unusual outcome that actually then produced a revolt against that unusual outcome and a restructuring of the company. And people often think, well, that can't be the interesting part of the story. Surely the interesting part of the story is, are the robots going to eat us all for breakfast? No, the interesting part of the story is, are the corporations going to eat us all for breakfast? Because if it happens, it will be because of the way that corporations are structured. And that seemed to me a really good example of that. But uh, it's a hard sell because, to be honest, corporate governance isn't as sexy as killer robots. But the killer robots here are the corporations.
0: I, I think that's I think that's an amazing insight and a useful one because it also tries to do I think what your book aims to at the at the highest level, which is to connect us back into this conversation about what type of artificiality we want to bring into the world. And so, one of the things that I think is is um, quite sort of apt in our current moment is if we recognize artificial intelligence, be they tools, be they agents, be they robots of whatever design will themselves be a product of the artificial agents that we currently live with now. It, it sort of, it begs that we understand far better how those agents make decisions, how they understand the world, how they take decisions. And a lot of what your book does, I think quite usefully, is to try and disentangle what it is that artificiality or machine sort of, either be it politics or just decision-making is and how it's different from how humans might see intelligent decision-making. And so I wonder if you could just spend a little time, you write in, in various places that artificial agents can act even if they can't think, but that might strike the reader or the listener in this case as being somewhat uh, off-putting or offsetting. How do, we, how do you understand the difference between those two and, and how is it that you then understand how we engage or um, steer, let's say, decision-making through these artificial agents, especially in a moment as,
2: as um, potentially potent as this one? It's a great question, not easy to answer. Um, I mean, I think we're all aware, we use this language, and I think we tend to think of our use of it as metaphorical, but it's not entirely metaphorical. The bureaucratic machine, the machinery of state, the machinery of government, and it has this kind of grinding, thoughtless quality. We've all encountered, not just political, but corporate and other entities that feel like a machine out of control. They they grind human beings down. you know, not just in a sort of Kafkaesque, nightmarish sense, but just in a regular, the day-to-day interactions with these entities with in their complexity, uh, in, in their strength as well. You feel like a human being when you encounter the bureaucracy, the blob, as it's sometimes called in the UK, you feel like you've encountered an unthinking, stifling sort of blanket that's just swamping you but they aren't just that and you know we always have to remember they aren't just that the blob also contains human beings and you can if you look hard enough you can usually find them and you can you can find the humans behind the the impersonal machine just as you can find the impersonal machines behind the humans it's it's always a two-way thing and i think you know it's tempting to despair of the mechanistic, the bureaucratic side of modern political and economic life. And it also, it is one of the drivers of of the reaction against contemporary democratic politics. I mean, I, I find the word populism is not always particularly helpful, but it's a good shorthand for what I'm talking about. People are really frustrated with the the inhuman qualities of these complex, incredibly involved systems that rule our world. And it is, not easy, but it's certainly possible for human beings to come along and promise to be the human version. And the more human these people are, and I would include Donald Trump in this, who strikes me as a very human politician, um, the greater their appeal. You know, their appeal is against the machine. Um, but it's also completely ridiculous because the only way to do anything in this world is to know how the machine works and to be able to run it better. You can't, if, if it's just human versus the machine, those machines win. So there is there is always that going on. But there's another danger, I think, a new danger, which I try and highlight towards the end of the book, which is these bureaucratic, corporate, political machines, they do have their own imperatives. Uh, they are not human, and they don't have as rich an understanding of the world that we live in as we do, because they're not intelligent. And they, one of the things they tend to prioritize is efficiency. They're looking for efficiencies. And these new smart machines, which also aren't yet particularly intelligent, are very good at delivering potentially efficiencies. And so there is at least a risk that these two kinds of machines will sort of form an alliance against us. And we're already starting to see a bit of that. You know, the state, we franchise out decision making to the state because we think the state still has enough human qualities or human beings in it, that these decisions will not be entirely remote and impersonal. And then we have democratic structures to try and hold them to account. But those states might then franchise out decision-making to machine learning systems in the name of efficiency. And then you're getting quite a long way away from the human. And in that conversation, I think we should resist the temptation to think the state is the inhuman thing. We should remember the state is part inhuman and part human. And it does still depend on us. We give it its intelligence. And it is still ostensibly at least made of us. You know, it's it's a sort of machine in, in the same way that until we reach actual AI, search engines are made of us. right? Google, the, the reason Google works is because of the human inputs. Some of them are bot inputs now, but mainly human inputs. The reason the state works is because of the human inputs. But there's a danger that the state will franchise out decision-making. So those human inputs get more and more distant from the decisions. We should try and... Re-emphasize and reclaim the human side of it, including, I think, against this danger that it will become artificial plus artificial against the human. But to to see that, I think you have to recognize the ways in which this isn't just a human versus artificial story. So at the end of the book, I say we face a series of choices, but they are basically about how you fit together three things, not two things. There's us. There's the artificial agents who run our world that we've been living with for a couple of hundred years. And there is the new breed of thinking machine learning entities. Not yet quite thinking. If we just think it's human versus artificial, I think we misunderstand it. The choice we make is, I think I put it more or less like this at the end of the book, what kind of artificiality do we want to live with? And I still would pin a lot of hopes on the state, actually, as the one that um, in this story we can exercise the most control over. Because A, we know these things better. We understand them better. We've lived with them for longer. B, they aren't smarter than we are. They just aren't, right? They're stupider than we are in many ways. So let's find you know, ways that we can pool our collective intelligence. We understand them. They're not smarter than us. But also, we have lots of mechanisms, structures that are designed to give us control over them. I don't know what mechanisms we have that are designed to give us control over ChatGPT, GPT, but I do know that we have mechanisms that are designed to give us control over OpenAI via the United States government. I mean, I'm not a US citizen, so I don't have that much control, but US citizens do. We shouldn't give up on those channels of control or at least influence. But if we just think it's us against the robots, we've got to make the robots ethical so that they don't treat us badly, we miss out the key players. And the key players are these hybrid entities that are, they are more human actually than the coming age of machines because they are made of us.
0: So in the end, because the handover is, is fundamentally or essentially about politics, well, we really, it really means we're talking about power. And so throughout this story, you know, states, we understand, sort of exert power, but through implicit or explicit threats, sometimes coercion. Corporations through the control of capital or finance or rules or the delivery and provision of key goods and services. And in this context, AI is is a bit of a puzzle because it potentially represents a revolution in the balance of power, in this case, across our social, economic and political worlds. But it really depends on how we see and how ai emerges and is used by sort of the forces and powers that be but there are a couple of sort of enduring puzzles that come out of your book which i'd love to sort of close with and one i think we've touched on throughout and maybe it can be easily summarized as misaligned incentives so you write we have become immensely skilled at deploying our intelligence human intelligence to make things work better more efficiently more securely And yet we seem incapable of applying applying the same levels of thought and organization to the preservation of the planet. And you added another section that we have a mismatch between the drives of these artificial persons and the needs of the planet. And so this gets me back into this question around sort of agency versus structure. And if we take climate change, this crisis feels like one in which structure really overwhelms individual capabilities as agents. And so the capital system doesn't determine our action, for instance, but it does impugn the advantages that human modern human intelligence might bring to bear and limits how we cooperate or or act together in a concerted fashion. And so I'm curious to know, to your best guess or estimation or just to tease out, how do you think AI could feature into this space? Is this a tool that provides more power to the agents, those human agents, us in some ways, or are we really trying to hedge against the, kind of the structure truly overwhelming the ability of us as actors, human actors in this space to sort of drive or, or make fundamental changes in terms of how we orient the future.
2: Yeah, um, I'd say a couple of things about that. And I think climate change is an interesting example here, because one of the things that strikes me about how we talk about what we can do and what we can't do, and I think we're all aware that we live in a political age, which is characterized by quite a lot of anger, but also quite a lot of fatalism, there's a, there's a lot of talk about that's just the way it is, including around climate change. There's an awful lot of climate of fatalism around climate change. But it, what struck me is there is an emphasis on if we're going to do something about this, maybe we need to re-engineer human behavior. That is, human beings have got to behave differently which strikes me as a very ambitious project. It's very ambitious to expect human beings to behave differently from how they behave, just let's say for the past couple of hundred years. You know, we, have, we live in a world where our behavior is conditioned by structures which do prioritize economic growth. And to get us to change is going to be hard, not least because we've become used to certain kinds of comforts and conveniences. I just you know maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but you know, changing human behavior is hard. We also think that uh, we, maybe with these new smart machines, if we can engineer them right, set them up right, they can provide these amazing resources to help us think through these challenges. And, and these machines are somehow malleable or fungible, you know they're, uh, Because we build them, maybe we can build ones that are going to be really helpful for us. And yet the real fatalism is around the, particularly the corporate agents kind of well you know modern corporations just are what they are they are these kind of greedy profit driven planet consuming machines you know the fossil fuel companies you know i was listening to a radio phone in this morning about the latest thing coming out of the cop and all of the people who are calling in and this wasn't some sort of rabble rousing show this was radio two in the bbc this is about as middle of the road as you can get um you know, this is the vanilla version of all of this and everybody was kind of, yeah, well, it's just words. We all know the corporations will carry on doing what they do. So it strikes me that we've just kind of got this the wrong way around, right? Uh, reengineering human beings is hard. Reengineering the AIs, it may be hard, it may not be hard. I don't know. It's way above my pay grade. And I don't think we know enough about these machines yet to know what they're capable of. But reengineering corporations is easy, right? You can You can redesign them. You can re-regulate them. You can re-engineer them. The 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 legal corporate governance structure in which they work, because that's what they are—they are just algorithms. You just change the functionings to make them produce different outcomes, and we've given up on that. So in the book, I say, and it's it's one of those statistics that I wouldn't want to sort of defend in a court of law. I read it and I sort of checked it, but it's it's a useful shorthand. But it's roughly that seventy percent of. Um, carbon emissions are the direct or indirect responsibility of 100 corporations. And in that world, the obvious thing to do would be to re-engineer those corporations. For instance, if we thought that 70% of carbon emissions was the responsibility of 100 robots, actual robots, you know, they were these huge things lumbering around the world, we would think the number one priority would be to get inside those robots and rewire them so that's what we should do. And yet there's a fatalism around that. It's too complicated. It's too hard. You know, it would have to happen through the state. Yes, it would. So we'd have to probably elect people on those kind of platforms. And we would have to take that seriously as a project, which we don't because democratic politics tends to, to revolve around more immediate you know, issues that grab people's attention. But nonetheless, I think we've got the sort of balance of risk wrong and also the balance of possibility wrong. I don't know whether these new smart machines are going to provide us human beings with resources, and they might. You know, They might provide us with the resources to re-engineer the corporations because they're smarter than the corporations. Human intelligence plus artificial intelligence might be just what we need to build a new world of corporate governance that actually works in human interest. I just don't know. But even in the absence of that, human beings could still try harder to re-engineer these things because they are just machines. We built them. We built them to serve us. And one of the parallels that I draw in the book is, you know, we have this anxiety about AI. What if we build machines that we lose control over because they are so much smarter than us, and so we can't anymore understand how they work, so we can't re-engineer them, and they become self-replicating monsters and they swallow us all up? Well, you could say there's a similar anxiety about states and corporations, but the difference is it's really hard to understand them, but it's not impossible. I mean, I say they are black boxes in a way, and even people who work for states and corporations often don't understand how they reach the decisions they do. But its I would be more hopeful that it's possible at least to get enough understanding of how they work to re-engineer them to serve our interests again. We are not yet with states and corporations at the point where we have completely lost control over them because they are such smart systems. They are incredibly complex systems. But we are still smarter than they are. And maybe with AIs, we'll be even smarter than they are. The mistake, I think, is to think, let's either re-engineer the humans or re-engineer the actual robots and let the states and corporations carry on almost as though they were the natural entities. They are the least natural entities in this story. They are just machines. So let's rebuild them. And I don't know when we gave up on that. It doesn't have, doesn't require revolution. You know, It doesn't require sort of you know, blood in the streets, although it might, I have no idea, right? But it, what it does require is political ambition to take seriously the thought that what is human made can be human remade. And that is the promise of modern politics. And I still think we're in the story of modern politics, not postmodern politics, not post-human politics. And in the story of modern politics, what is human made can be remade by human beings using the smartest tools available, and for now, the smartest tool available is still our collective intelligence. So let's do that. One of the things the book ends with, and I think it's, it's the right sort of note to
0: carry is, is that this is, we probably sit at a moment of kind of perpetual or ongoing negotiation. This future that we sort of may or may not bring into being is a function of how we engage and to your point, and for this book's purpose, how we engage with these artificial agents that exist. But I want to take you back, if I could, just for a final question to a previous book of yours, which is excellent, on How Democracy Ends, where you propose a few alternatives, eventually abandoning those alternatives sort of in light of, you know, the lumbering but somehow still effective enough democratic scheme or model. But I wonder, you know, in a moment where we're talking about ensuring sort of the human seat at that negotiating table, has this book changed the way you thought about the conclusions of How Democracy Ends? Has it has it added any insights to how you see or perhaps even burnished the value of, of democracy as it is today or as it could be made tomorrow? I'm just curious, you know, to, to cast our eyes forward because this is about politics, which is really where humans and machines meet. You know, what what is the future politics that you could envision as a function of, of what you now know?
2: So one thing that has changed since I wrote How Democracy Ends is in that book, I basically begin by saying Donald Trump is not the end of democracy. And when uh, Biden won and Trump lost, and then Trump did leave office reluctantly, dragged out by his fingernails, but he left. I thought, indeed, if he gets reelected, I'm less sanguine. Is all I would say. So, you know, that I, I had I had thought for a while that um, he wasn't the end of democracy. I'm not. I, I you know I still I still think the institutions actually of the American state are way more robust than a man like him ultimately can overcome, but it just slightly freaks me out the thought that um, a democracy would re-elect him. <laughs> that's, that's all I would say. I didn't sort of think that that was a possibility. I thought he was, I thought he might be re-elected to a second term, but I didn't think he would be kicked out and then re-elected. So we'll see about that. But on the wider question, um, I mean, yeah, of course, everyone's views change all the time and the, the, the emergence of the, the latest versions of this technology are, you know, extraordinary. And at the age of this year has been an extraordinary year. I mean, ChatGPT didn't exist this time last year. Um, and and new and better versions are coming along all the time. And it does change a lot of how one thinks about the world. You know, and it, if you, as I do work in a university, you find yourself thinking about all sorts of fundamental questions. What is education going to be? What is writing going to be? What the most prosaic level, what is assessing other people's writing going to be? How will we know who's written what? All of that. But that basic point that in this world, we are still in a story which is recognizably a story, and I I felt in the age of COVID, we saw this very clearly, a story that has its roots. Hundreds of years ago, we built these security delivering machines, which are clumsy and cumbersome and frightening and dangerous, but also we fall back on them for our security. I still don't think that has changed. If these machines really are a threat to us, then I think it is those other machines that we built earlier that will have to save us. I don't think we can do it without them. But that does mean reconciling ourselves to all of that, both clumsy, cumbersome features. Democracy is a clumsy tool. It could be improved. I still feel as I felt when I wrote that book, that what we call democracy is just one way of doing it. And there are a hundred ways of doing it. And we could definitely use this technology to be more imaginative in how we use democracy. I still think we gave up way too early on the dream of the 1990s of a kind of e-democracy. Let's, you know, let's have more human inputs in this way of doing politics, using this technology to provide the conduit for those inputs. So I still think we could do it in a hundred different ways. But nonetheless, we have to accept that where there is a real threat to us, the state more than the corporation. I mean, I still would put my money on the state rather than alphabet or meta to save us all. The state, with all its faults, is our tool for keeping us safe in a world in which it is almost also the most dangerous thing. And that cognitive dissonance that we've lived with for hundreds of years and in the nuclear age is so extreme that most of us can't bear to think about it for more than 10 seconds. It does our heads in. That is the human condition. That is what it means to be human in the 21st century, to know that the thing that can keep us safe is also the thing that might kill us all. And I don't think we've moved beyond that in the age of chat GPT. We may at some point move beyond that, but for now I still think that terrible dilemma is our dilemma.
0: Well, I urge everyone um, out there to explore David's latest book, The Handover How We Gave Control of Our Lives to Corporations, States, and AIs. And really, a heartfelt thanks to you, David, for sharing your time today and for engaging with a range of, you know, um, deeply, deeply confusing and immensely valuable questions, I think, today. Thanks for
1: listening to Intelligence Squared. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com.